You're listening to Sciencing the Shit Out of MS, part of the Classroom Psychology Network. And now, here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sciencing the Shit Out of MS. I'm your host, Cora. Thank you so very much for joining me. You are all welcome here. Thank you so very, very much for jumping on in here. You know, it's wonderful to see you. you put your feet up, uh, chill out, grab yourself a cup of tea, and we'll sit together and we'll talk about some sciencey stuff here on Sciencing the Shit Out of MS. Uh, we don't do the medicine. There's plenty of people out there doing the medicine. I'm a psychologist. I'm Dr. Cora Sargent. I'm going to be your host. And my job here is to try and have a look at the science of psychology to see how do we thrive in the context of MS. We're going to be taking a look at different topics every every episode. And each episode, we're going to come away with some things that we can do. And I'm literally going to do them. And we'll let you know how it goes. You're welcome to join in at home, you know, <laughs> jump on in, uh, give it a go, see what happens. Uh, the science of psychology, hopefully, is going to give us a sense of what we can do to live better with MS or with any chronic condition. Um, even though I might be physically, like, not doing so well over time, if I'm psychologically growing over time, then I'll take that trade for sure. So here we go. Now, the first step on this journey, we're going to cover a bunch of different topics. I've already picked out a handful of good ones. I think next time we're going to talk about post-traumatic growth as a good place to start. But I think there's a topic that I need to talk about before that, because I have been until recently. I mean, this is, this is a personal podcast. This is a place for us to kind of talk about our experiences. I'll always be very honest with you all about my experience. I, I think that's the only way to go forwards. Um. And I, I had a, a huge bout of anxiety over the summer after I had gastroenteritis and got like really anxious basically about, about my health uh, and about a future with this disease, you know, sitting on the couch, losing weight and feeling extremely nauseous and not being able to eat because you're so sick. It just, I don't know, it brings home an experience that, I, I don't know, was kind of, it just jumped into the future, this sort of fear of what a future could be like with this disease wasn't a necessarily a realistic vision of the future, more a catastrophic vision of the future. And I started to inhabit that space, like a deep and profound fear of the future. And more than that, I started to fear being anxious because being anxious was keeping me up at night and I wasn't sleeping very well. I was getting really fatigued. And all of that started to kind of bring home that I had become anxious about being anxious and I was getting anxious about kind of pushing my body. Like I had been walking less and less because I was scared of like feeling wobbly on my feet and of falling. Even though I hadn't fallen in a long time, I was still really anxious about that possibility and avoiding the experience. And so recently I came across an idea, a concept which makes sense of why, though like in the short term, avoiding anxiety and trying to avoid you know, even feeling fatigue and avoid the wobbliness that I might be experiencing, you know, even though avoiding those things made me feel better in the short term, why avoiding them might not make me feel better in the long term. And so for me personally, I think what I was doing was exacerbating the anxiety in the long term. And it was only when I read this article, usually we're going to cover like meta-analyses and 
and systematic reviews and stuff because they're a good place to understand the scientific consensus in a field. But this article, this one article, I think is a good one to focus on today because it's just so beautifully written and it covers a really interesting concept. That concept is experiential avoidance. So this is an article from Fernandez Rodriguez, Paz Caballero, uh, Gonzalez Fernandez, Perez Alvarez in 2018. Activation versus experiential avoidance as a trans diagnostic condition of emotional distress. Uh, you can find the link to that because it's uh, open access, thank goodness, in the description. Follow along. We're going to be focusing on the introduction. Introductions are a good place to, to find uh, somebody's review of like a scientific consensus in a field because usually they're carving out a gap for their own research. And in this case, these writers are outstanding. They wrote a gorgeous introduction that really makes sense for me of these concepts. The idea of experiential avoidance in particular. So experiential avoidance, it seems, is the desire to avoid, to push away, to distract from, to try and escape unpleasant feelings on the inside. Unpleasant internal experiences that may be just a part of human experience, like anxiety, for example, while very unpleasant, is actually a very necessary part of human experience. Sort of is a good way to indicate to you that you're in danger, for apart from anything else. But also it's a good way to indicate something that's important to you that you want to hang on to, indicating something that you should be attending to or that your, your mind considers important. It's all really important stuff. So for sure, trying to avoid feeling anxious ever actually is, <laughs> if we never feel anxiety again, for sure that might be problematic. We <laughs> might be going to doctors to be like, hey doc, I don't ever feel anxious. I, I think I've broken my brain. Um, for sure we need that emotion. So experiential avoidance is, even on the face of it, kind of self-defeating, but it makes sense as something that somebody might do intuitively to try to reduce the the uh, sort of unpleasant experiences they're having internally. So for me personally, I would feel anxious and I would desperately try to avoid any thought that might trigger that anxiety. And as soon as that thought might sneak up, because I don't know if you've ever tried not to think of thought, but it's kind of counterintuitive. <laughs> try not to think of a something is like, oh, immediately that something comes into mind. So trying not to think of something is incredibly difficult to do. And and of course, that thought about like, oh, goodness, I'm not going to sleep tonight would jump into my mind from nowhere, manifesting out of my deepest, darkest fears. And then I'd be so scared that I wasn't going to sleep that I wouldn't sleep. And then I'd be punishing myself, cursing my own anxiety for stealing my opportunity to sleep from me. And, um, you know, intuitively, it sort of made sense what I was trying to do, but it turned out it was a pretty bad idea, as these authors explain. Because while you know, experiential avoidance makes sense in the short term, it drives behaviors that like prevent you from challenging the anxiety. It drives behaviors like desperately trying to avoid anxiety, which reinforce the notion that that anxiety is going to be overwhelming or unsurvivable in some way. And it distances yourself from the conditions of life which are relevant to you and which could, which in their, in the author's words, that the sort of, it distances yourself, you lose contact with the very life contingencies and circumstances in which change could and should occur. 
So I was kind of preventing myself from getting better with the anxiety, from improving over time. I was doing the thing that exactly the opposite of what I needed to do. The anxiety wasn't something that was going to be impossible to survive, but by trying desperately to avoid it, I was making it balloon in size. There's a good TEDx talk, which I'll pop in the description. Um, really cool talk from a, uh, somebody who experienced anxiety and now works with people who experience anxiety. And he said that, you know, the more you try to ignore the crew of your ship, if your psychology is like a ship, the more you try to ignore the anxieties of the crew, the louder they shout. And the louder they shout, the less the captain can be heard. So his point is, first of all, don't feel anxious about being anxious. It's a perfectly normal human experience. While it is deeply unpleasant, it is survivable. And two, the more you listen to your crew, the less loud they need to shout. And so the volume of the anxiety will decrease over time the more you just embrace that experience. And then as the crew quieten, the captain can be heard. That's your kind of rational mind speaking to the crew and saying, hey, it's going to be okay, providing reassurance, problem solving, thinking through the issue. So that's a kind of cool way of thinking about this. And this article sort of says essentially that that approach is right. You know, I, I listened to that TEDx talk and I was like, uh, I'm not so sure the science backs that up, but the science absolutely backs that up with this concept of acceptance activation, which is sort of the other side of the coin to experiential avoidance. Acceptance being the sort of active contacting of these unpleasant psychological experiences directly, fully, without needless defense. So, accepting whatever the state of play is in your psychology, you know, engaging with it and accepting it fully and non-judgmentally. I suppose this kind of links to mindfulness in a strange way, just accepting how things are with, non, with no judgment and with the greatest of kindness in how we think about ourselves. And the aim, of course, is to try to prevent yourself from not only having a problem that is, is causing an issue like the anxiety is, is causing an issue in and of itself, but creating a solution which exacerbates the problem. You know, accepting the way things are, accepting it non-judgmentally and with great kindness to yourself, listening to the crew, letting them speak, hearing them. It's a pretty good start. And the other is activation. Activation being the active engagement with life experiences as an alternative response strategy to experiential avoidance. Doing the things that might make you anxious or in spite of the anxiety, like, and maybe just doing things which you know make you happy that are an alternative to just trying to avoid anxiety. You do the things that are gonna make you happy in the world. Now, activation is gonna be our bedrock here because it's the sort of stance from which we can do all the things which are going to make us feel happier and more fulfilled, more connected, more optimistic, you know, greater self-efficacy. It's going to connect us to the whole of everything else we need to do, right? This is why this comes first, I think, because as long as I'm trying to avoid anxiety, I can't, I'm not really doing things positively, right? So the first step before we get into the, the, the nuts and bolts of all the things that we can actively do, we need to understand the principle that we need to be actively doing things which are good for us. 
it's not just trying to avoid the things that we think are bad for us. It's also about trying to do the things that are good for us psychologically, connecting to other people, developing our optimism, etc., etc. You tending to the garden of our mental health. And again, with acceptance and patience, because these things aren't going to change overnight, right? It is much like tending a garden. We can't, you know, we can't tend to the garden. We can't plow the fields and then wake up the next morning and like start kicking at the ground because we don't have tomatoes yet. <laughs> like, we have to, <laughs> it takes time. It is much like kind of nurturing, nurturing the earth and nurturing the plants that grow there. You know, the psychology, the, the positive elements of our psychology require tending to and they require time and practice and, you know, work to, to help them to develop and flourish. So this article is really cool. I do encourage you to take a look at it. Like the introduction is beautifully written and it describes experiential avoidance and acceptance activation really beautifully. And so what am I going to be doing? The first thing I'm going to do in terms of activation is something that, you know, my counselor suggested that I do. And I was like, I know better than you. Um, <laughs> I just ignored her slightly. Uh, but of course, of course, she was right. Uh, I'm going to contact my brother and I'm going to go and visit him every few Wednesdays, uh, go for a run, do some exercise. I'm going to push couch to 5k, might have MS, but damn it, I'm going to couch to 5k as much as I can safely. Uh, if I have any near miss falls, we'll just tone it back a bit until my legs get stronger, but you know, we'll keep pushing in couch to 5k and I'll merge that with an opportunity to go see my brother. I only work 0.8, right? I don't work Wednesdays. That was at request of my MS team. They're amazing. And so on a Wednesday, there's an opportunity there for me to go do some running, go see my brother. And so that should be a good example of activation, right? Exercise, we know is good for mental health. No surprises there. Um, difficult to do, requires a lot of self-control, hard when you're feeling anxious, but we're going to do it anyway. I'm going to go and see my brother which again, good opportunity for connection with somebody I care about, good opportunity for social support, good opportunity to develop that kind of mutual, you know, mutual closeness that we can enjoy. And that is a good example, I think, of activation. And when I go to bed and I start to feel anxious, I'm going to accept that experience. I'm going to listen to the crew. I'm going to hear them out. And then I'm going to, as they quieten, provide just a little bit of reassurance, not invalidating their experience, not trying to push away the anxiety. I'm just going to hear them out. And then I'm going to reassure them and try and go back to sleep. Next time, we're going to come back together and have a look at post-traumatic growth. It turns out that multiple sclerosis is actually in the sweet spot of trauma, <laughs> if there is such a thing. Things that are very, very mildly traumatic aren't big enough things to trigger psychological growth automatically. And things which are extremely traumatic are kind of too traumatic to trigger psychological growth in the same way. There seems to be a kind of inverse U relationship where things that are quite traumatic but not devastatingly traumatic are opportunities for psychological growth. And it turns out that some research is highlighting that the vast majority of people who experience multiple sclerosis experience some level of psychological or adversarial growth out of it. 
So that's going to be our first stop on our tour next. What is post-traumatic growth? And how do I get more of that sweet, sweet stuff? <laughs> that, that sweet, sweet psychological growth. How do I get some of that good stuff? Um, so next time, we'll look to the psychological growth literature, post-traumatic growth, and we'll work out, you know, how do we continue to flourish in the context of MS? This has been sciencing the shit out of MS. We solve one problem, we solve the next problem, we solve the next problem, and if we solve enough problems, we get to be better and happier than we were yesterday. Look forward to seeing you next time 